Uh, we are closing out our series in Romans. By, today we're going to look at the 16th chapter. Um, you know, if, if you have been reading through Romans throughout this series, you know that Paul is a pretty exhaustive preacher and writer. Uh, you know, there are sentences in Romans that goes on for paragraphs. Uh, it's just one clause after another, and it's sometimes tough to kind of navigate through some of Paul's arguments and, and his understanding of the gospel of God. But I think if you put the time in and you dive in and actually do it, you come out with a deeper faith. You come out having grown in grace. Um, you know, Paul, the driving goal of the Apostle Paul for the letter to the Romans is really to get his readers, people like you and me, to understand most fully for ourselves the gospel of God. Why is the gospel important? Why is the gospel of God something we need to not only hear, but receive and own and then share? Well, Paul gives us his thesis statement in Romans 1, verse 16. He says, The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. First for the Jew, then for the Greek, uh, Greeks. Friends, you have to remember that the gospel of God radically transformed the life of the Apostle Paul. He went from Saul then to Paul. You know, by all accounts, Paul was an extremely successful person in his day in the city of Jerusalem. If the city had a uh, top 30 up-and-coming stars, uh, Paul would have probably topped the list. He would have been the number one, the, the creme brulee, the cream of the crop. And yet, one day, he had an encounter with Jesus Christ, and that encounter changed his life. By the world's standards, he went from rising star to a complete bust. Okay, Cleveland Browns fans, how many quarterbacks fit that description? Rising star to a complete and utter bust. That's the Apostle Paul. Again, by the world's standards, he was a complete bust, but by heaven's standards, he would become one of the most prolific and enthusiastic defenders of the Christian faith. Friends, Paul was convinced that what the good news of Jesus Christ could offer a person is far greater than anything this world can offer. It's like it wasn't that Jesus promised to give you a better life. It was that Jesus promises to give you the best life. It wasn't that Jesus came in order to kind of clean up our sin-riddled lives. Jesus came to give us a whole new life. I mean, this book, the book of Romans, just shouts that the reason Jesus Christ came into this world is because we as humanity were desperately lost and dead in our sins without him. But by his love, friends, he took that sin to the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins. And now he stands before all of us, waiting for us to surrender to him and accept him as our Lord and Savior. Paul experienced the gospel of God something that was dynamic, that was indescribable, and that was just simply good. Again, it was the gospel of God that, that compelled Paul to preach, to teach, and to eventually give his life for the sake of making Jesus known to other people. You walk through the course of history over the past 2,000 years, there are 2,000 years, there are moments in the church's history where a person's willingness to step out in faith because of the belief in the gospel not only radically changed their lives, but changed the, uh, the life of a community or the life of a nation or the life of a world. Let me give you a, a for instance. In the, it was the gospel of God that convinced Dietrich Barhofer to stand up against Hitler and Nazism in Germany in the 1930s. 
It was the gospel of God that, that drove Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's vision for racial reconciliation in America in the 1960s. It was the gospel of God that compelled Mother Teresa to give up a life of comfort and go move to live and minister with the poorest of the poor in Calcutta, India. Look at our own church. It's the gospel of God that is a driving force behind why we, uh, Church of the Lakes, offer a summer camp for kids in the foster care system every July. It's the gospel of God that compels us as a congregation to build homes with habitat, to uh, partner with Rahab Ministries to fight sex trafficking, to sponsor children in Las Navas, Ecuador, and to partner for global health in Bo, Sierra Leone. It is the gospel of God that motivates us as a faith community to undergird everything we do and everything we say with the authority of God's scripture. It's the gospel of God, church, that offers all of us a hope for a prosperous future, one where sin and our brokenness doesn't have the final say, but where Jesus Christ does. Friends, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So I, I, I got a story this past week about a pastor who got uh, reappointed to an aging congregation. And during one of the services, uh, one particular Sunday, uh, he was going through the announcements of, of that day, and uh, he told the congregation that he was considering uh, for next month's communion to switch out the grape juice with prune juice. Congregations kind of, why would you do that, right? Uh, that makes no sense. So they appropriately asked that question. Why? Well, the pastor responded by saying, well, if the gospel of God can't get you moving, maybe the prune juice will. <laughs> Friends, we have a message to share to the nations, amen? We behold a power that can bring people salvation, and knowing that, we cannot sit long. We must allow that power to work in and through us for God's kingdom in heaven is invading this earth through his church, through people like you and me. Church, we have to share this message. Now, we're going to cap off our series looking at the final chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. We are going to read this chapter today in its entirety. And it's a lot of salutations to a whole lot of different people. And as I'm reading over the 26 names in here, some that are difficult to pronounce, uh, you're going to wonder why am I reading this list in, in, in church. You know, a lot of us who have you know, been gung-ho at the start of the year wanting to read the Bible in a year, you know, get through Genesis quickly, get through Exodus sort of quickly. We then get to uh, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and we start falling asleep because of all the lists of the names, the censuses that the, the, the author uh, puts on paper, and we wonder why. Well, I'm going to give you three reasons why we're going to read through Romans 16. I'm going to tell you right up front, and I think they're important, okay? The reason Paul lists all these names and offers all these greetings is to really speak of three realities in the church. Here's the first. Our unity as the body of Christ must outweigh the divisions we see in our society. Number two, I don't care who, who we are, none of us will ever outgrow our need for Christian community. Third and final, ordinary people play an extraordinary role when it comes to living out the mission of the church. Listen to how the Apostle Paul uh, writes these three realities in this uh, 
this greeting to many people. Now look, I'm, I'm not a biblical scholar. I've been through a divinity school. I'm, I'm getting my doctorate, but some of these names are unfamiliar to me. So please don't hold me to the pronunciation of some of these names, okay? I'm going to do my best this morning. But uh, sit back and listen to God's word. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Centurae, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require of you, for she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila who work with me in Christ Jesus and who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Painetus, um, who was the first convert in Asia for Christ. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard among you. Greet Adronicus and Junia, my relatives, who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my relative Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the land, or in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and greet his mother, a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, that one was easy to say, uh, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to keep an eye on those who cause dissension and offenses in opposition to the teachings that you have learned. Avoid them. For such people do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the simple-minded. For while your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, I want you to be wise in what is good and guileless in what is evil. The God of peace will shortly crush Satan under your feet. Can I say it again? The God of peace will shortly crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my co-worker, greets you. So does Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my relatives. I, Tertius, the writer of this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to a whole, whole, the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the church treasurer, and his brother Cortus greet you as well. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord God, in the midst of these few moments as we uh, reflect on your life-giving word, I would just ask that you bless the words of my lips, the meditation of all our hearts, that they be a prophet to us and acceptable to you, for you indeed are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we do not know much from these 26 names, uh, the people that, that bear these names in Romans chapter 16. We do know one thing, the names are really strange, right? <laughs> Listen, if you know any women that are with child that are still considering what they should name their newborn child whenever that child comes uh, and, and is born into this world, 
dissuade them from looking at Romans 16 and picking those names, okay? There's a few that are good. Phoebe, uh, Julia, I guess, is, is okay, right, Julia? Um, Timothy, Mary, uh, th those are good names, but Adronicus, Fledgen, I'm going to assure you, if you name your kid Adronicus, he's probably going to get picked on in middle school. Am I right? You know, we don't know much about these names of these people, but what we do know is that they're listed in the body of Christ at the church in Rome. And because they are listed, what Paul is trying to drive home is this reality that unity in the body of Christ outweighs, it must outweigh the divisions we see in our culture, in our society. Let me ask you a question. Do you think American society can get any more divided than it is right now? Politically, social, economically, religiously, sexually, racially. Man, everywhere you look, people are lamenting uh, uh, over the divisiveness in the American society. Yet I'm seeing very few outside the church actually doing something to rectify the issue. In fact, it almost seems like just the opposite is happening every day. Because emotionalism sells, because conflict sells, let's try to make people more and more aware of their differences. Friends, this is not so in the church. In fact, Romans 16 shows us that the unity in the body of Christ, again, needs to, must outweigh the divisions we see in our society. So the names listed here in Romans 16 show us that the early church was extremely diverse. And there are three distinctions I want to highlight uh, that made up the people in the church in Rome. The first had to do with race. There was diversity in race. So some of the people I named this morning were Jewish Christians. Others were Gentile Christians. Many were from the Middle East, others from Europe, still others from Asia. Now you think having that much diversity in one local church would raise a lot of uh, cultural or political tensions. And it did. A lot of Romans, Paul is addressing some of those tensions that that, that, that diversity created. And it makes you wonder, wouldn't it be just easier to set up a couple different churches in, in, in a city? Like this could be the Jewish Christian church, and this could be the Gentile Christian church, so on and so forth. Wouldn't it just be easier? Maybe. But, but here's the thing. Paul knew that these believers in Rome demonstrating unity in one church was a very important gospel witness because it gave us a glimpse of what God's kingdom will ultimately be like. Friends, when all is said and done, God's kingdom is going to be multi-ethnic and multi-racial. We know that, right? It's that vision the Apostle John gives us in Revelation 7, verse 9. He says the kingdom of God will consist of people of every tongue, every tribe, and every nation, from every byway and every highway, all united, hear this, under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So one of the distinctions that, that Paul is saying this church is, is bringing unity in the midst of is that of race. The second has to do with class. You know, if you were to, again, read through the list of these names, you would see that there's nobility on that list, but there's also slaves, and then everybody in between. Let me give you a for example. Aristobulus and Narcissus were indicated by Paul as heads of their household. Aristus, which was at the end of what I read, was a city treasurer. He was, uh, worked for the government. Rufus and Urbanus 
were common slave names. Hear this. All listed together as equals in the body of Christ. By the way, that's what is behind Paul's uh, uh, encouragement to when you gather for worship to greet one another with a holy kiss. Sounds a little awkward 2,000 years later, right? Like if somebody walked up and gave you a kiss on the cheek, if, if it caught you unaware, you might slap them or at least might make you blush, right? This was not so in the church 2,000 years ago. Uh, what that was, the kiss on the cheek, was symbolic of the equality and the friendship between two people. It was in the church. Why? Because it was the church where royalty and slaves could meet together again as equals. So Paul is taking this distinction in the world and showing how Christ can bring unity in the midst of it. The third and final has to do with that of gender. The 26 names listed in, in Romans 16, nine of them are women. Now listen, Paul's inclusion of women in this very patriarchal society is very intentional on his part. And again, also very unusual. Although Paul not only lists their names, do you see what else he did? If you were following closely in your own Bibles, that of course some of you brought with you, which I'm happy to see. But, but what you see is Paul calls the women in this text co-laborers or co-workers in the cause of the gospel. What does that mean? He's giving women equal footing in the church when it comes to church leadership. Paul is showing that the unity in the church needs to outweigh the divisions in society. And if we are united as a church, and, and maybe those three distinctions or maybe even more, guess what? we got a message to share to the world around us a world that is so divided. The second thing Paul wants us to know in this last chapter of his letter is that none of us, I don't care who we are, none of us will ever outgrow the need for Christian community. You know, if you were to go through this list again in Romans 16, it's quite striking how many personal connections Paul had with the people listed. Now listen, if anybody in the kingdom of God had ever had an important job to do, it was the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, what he wrote down, what he preached, has set the direction of the church for the past 2,000 years and counting. But, but he's not off in some ivory tower disconnected from the world as he preaches and as he teaches. No, like we are all called to do, he's working out his faith in community. He's growing in grace in Community, friends, if we want to grow in grace, we have to do it with one another. We can't do it in isolation. I say it all the time. Christians are part of the one another religion. We're in this life together. We, we do life alongside one another. It doesn't happen in isolation. You can't grow in grace on a Sunday morning if you do it consistently, going out to a, a a pond and fishing by yourself in the middle of a lake. It can't happen as you're swinging a golf club on a golf course. It can't even happen sitting on the end of your couch if that's what you're doing consistently. We need one another. We need each other. This is what this list conveys to me. We can't grow in isolation. I, I saw a, uh, a study come out in the Scientific uh, American magazine uh, not too long ago that did a study on, on people in isolation and people who, were lonely, who are lonely. And what the study concluded was that people who find themselves perpetually in isolation from one another 
lose 15 years on their lifespan. Equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Uh, author, pastor out of New York City, Tim Keller, in speaking of this issue that, that faces humanity, takes us in one of his books all the way back to the creation story, Adam and Eve, and he has this to say. He said, Adam was not lonely in the Garden of Eden because he was imperfect, but because he was perfect. The ache for friends is the one ache that is not a result of sin. God made us in such a way that we couldn't even enjoy paradise without friends, human friends. Friends, we can never outgrow our need for Christian community. The third and final point Paul is making, this is my favorite, I think, is that ordinary people play an extraordinary role when it comes to living out the mission God has given the church. This list shows that there's a whole lot of players involved when it comes to the ministry in Rome and when it comes to living out the gospel. For instance, although, excuse me, although we don't know the stories of most of these people that are listed. Here's a for instance, verse 22. Tertius. Have we heard this guy's name outside of Romans 16? Absolutely not. But what did Tertius do? He dictated the letter to the Romans that Paul spoke to him. Paul dictated it, he wrote it down, and it was given to the church in Rome. Where would this letter be without Tertius? But again, he's a name we don't know outside of this letter. What about Trophania or, or Tryphosa or Persis? Paul says they worked really, really hard in ministry. But what do we know outside of Romans 16? What about Priscilla and Aquila? Paul said they, they put their necks out. They put their lives on the line for the Apostle Paul. But outside of this and some scripture stories and acts, we don't know much about Priscilla and Aquila. Or how about Rufus's mother, who was like a mother to the Apostle Paul? We don't know much about these people outside of these verses. However, what we do know is they played a, had a huge impact on the spread of the gospel. Friends, the people named in Romans 16 were unknown people who worked sacrificially and who worked hard for the cause of Christ. Many of them actually suffered and died for the sake of the gospel, and because they did, we're here today. Think about it. 2,000 years ago, America was the ends of the earth, wasn't it? I know now we like to think America is the center of the world, <laughs> But 2,000 years ago, we were the ends of the earth. And because these people were faithful, guess what? We had a chance to hear the good news of Jesus. Friends, now it is our turn. That's the challenge, right? What will we do to share the gospel of God with people in our circles? What will we do to, to offer up the good news of Jesus Christ to those in our day? You know, listen, I know last year we talked a lot about you know, sharing testimonies your faith stories. Listen, if you are not having gospel conversations every single week with people in your circles of influence, you need to step back and reflect on, on, on the impact Christ has made on your life. Remember what Christ has done for you and then go tell other people about it. That's all that we're being asked to do. You know, one of the greatest uh, movements for the gospel, one of the greatest gospel expansions that took place in this world happened in 1700. And it was a movement really unknown to, to most of history. It's called the Moravian Movement. Those of you who are a diehard Methodist who know the life of John Wesley knew or know 
the importance the Moravians played in his coming to faith moment in, in the 1730s. But uh, the Moravian movement uh, was began, begun by a guy named Ludwig von Zindendorf. <laughs> his name's up there with the names in Romans uh, 16, right? Well, Sinden, Zindendorf was a young man, very wealthy, man of means. And uh, one day he found himself in an art gallery. And he was uh, just meditating and reflecting on this picture in front of him. It was called Behold the Man. And it was a picture of Jesus Christ strung up on a cross, broken, bloody, and, and bruised. And uh, as he's looking at that picture, he notices a little uh, inscription underneath it. And here's what that inscription read. It said, all this I have done for you. What have you done for me? Well, Zindendorf took a moment and began to reflect on everything Jesus has done for him in his life. And he also started to even reflect on where he would be without Jesus. And he came to this epiphany that you know where he'd be? where millions of other people are who don't know Jesus, eternally separated from their creator. So in that moment, in that art gallery, Zindendorf got a hold of the gospel. He opened up his home to people and he challenged his, his neighbors to be for other people what Christ has been to you. He even financially undergirded mission efforts around the world. People would come in and be trained by Zindendorf and then he would send them out on his dime to tell others about Jesus Christ. The famous battle cry for the Moravian movement, I love it. It was preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Moravians established gospel communities, friends, all over the world from Greenland to Guana from Jamaica to Cape Town, from New York to North Carolina. They took it to the ends of the earth, preached the gospel, die and be forgotten. Yet with an impact that resonates through eternity. I, I don't know if anyone has told you recently, but you know one day we're all going to die, right? I mean, life death is a one-one ratio and to add a, 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 another layer of, of um, um, somberness to this, not only are we going to die, but we're going to be forgotten after a couple generations. Three if we're lucky. So, so knowing that reality, I, why not do something before then that will actually last an eternity? Friends, what has Jesus given you? Every single one of us who's laid claim to the gospel of God have been given specific gifts from the Holy Spirit. God created us with specific skill sets and we can use those gifts and skill sets to advance the gospel of God. So I ask, what has the Lord given you? How will you share the gospel in your circles, whether it's in your home, your workplace, your school, your community to the ends of the earth? You know, the Apostle Paul, we're going to close it here in a moment, he closes out his letter to the Romans with words not actually for the people of Rome, but he reserves words for God himself. So after the Apostle Paul uh, reflects on this gospel he has just presented and written about to the church in Rome, after the Apostle Paul reflects on just being part of this incredible movement that has taken the world by storm, he breaks out in prayer. He offers up a dixology, a, a, a praise to his God, and here it is. 
He says, Now to God who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and according to the proclamation of Jesus Christ and according to the command of the eternal God, the reason to bring about the obedience of faith to that God, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, to whom be glorified forever. Amen. Church, the Lord has done so much for us. I ask today, what have you done for the Lord? Let us pray. Lord God, you have done so much for us. If we can take a moment to consider what you have done for us, you've created us. (laughs) Through the death of your son, Jesus Christ, you redeemed us. On that first Pentecost Sunday, Lord, you gave us the Holy Spirit to daily sustain us. And if that hasn't been enough, Lord, in your grace, you have touched many of our lives in just profound and amazing ways. Like for some of us, by the power of your gospel, you brought us health and wholeness physically, mentally or emotionally. Lord, for some of us, by the power of your gospel, you have reconciled broken relationships that would never have been reconciled otherwise. And by the power of your gospel, Lord, you have even delivered some of us from addictions that have tried to imprison us. Lord, where we have grown stale in our faith in you, I ask in this moment that you would remind us again of your gospel. Lord, may our love for you ignite within us a desire, a desire to share and serve and ministry to other people in ways that make your kingdom in heaven more of a reality here on earth. We love you, Jesus. Build your kingdom through us. And all God's people said, amen.